Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to continue today this incredible story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and I'm privileged to meditate on God's Word with you. We're going to be in verses 28 through 44 of John chapter 11. So happy Palm Sunday. Today we commemorate the beginning of Holy Week or Passion Week as we approach Easter next Sunday. When, but this is the day today when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final time uh, and all of the events leading to his crucifixion and resurrection are set into motion. Last week we began our journey toward Jerusalem uh, with the first half of this amazing story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This occurs right before the triumphal entry. We saw how this miracle is a sign of something far greater than reviving a very dead man. Jesus is giving us a picture not only of what will happen to him very soon on the cross and when he vacates his own tomb after his death, but he's also telling us about who he is, who Jesus is. Jesus is proving that he's God. Because after all, only God can raise a four-day-old corpse from the dead. Nobody else can do that. And so in doing so, Jesus is asking all of us a very important question. Do you believe this? And so what Jesus wants us to understand is that we've got to believe in Him, not just in the things that He does. It isn't enough just to believe some facts about Jesus. We've got to believe Him. And believing Him means that we receive Christ as He presents Himself to us. And who is Jesus? He says so Himself. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. Jesus is I am in the very same absolute sense that God presents Himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. This is what believing is about. It's, what, it's, it's, it's who believing is about. Our belief is about Jesus Christ. This is what we saw last week. Today we're going to experience the rest of this amazing story and we're going to get to see Jesus raise his very, very dead friend back to life. And what are we going to learn in all of this? Well, last week our big idea was that we must believe Christ on his own terms and our big idea this week flows straight from that. And here it is. Do you believe Jesus? If you do, then you are able to see the glory of God. And so as we explore that truth, there are a few landmarks in this story that are going to help us to fully understand what that means. First, we're going to delve into what death means for a Christian and how it relates to the resurrection. Second, we're going to see how unbelief makes us blind to the glory of God. And third, and finally, As we look ahead to the miracle of the cross and the empty tomb, we're going to discover that believing Christ also means that we've got to believe something about ourselves, and that is that we are utterly worthy of the eternal wrath of God. And that means that if we're going to see God's glory, then we've got to believe that we are bound by sin and that we need a Savior who will let us go from our slavery to it. And so along the way, this is what we're going to witness as these events unfold in our first section in verses 28 through 32. We're going to see the overwhelming grief of those who don't yet fully comprehend who Jesus is. 
Second, in the second section, in verses 33 through 37, Jesus weeps. And the cynics can only see what in their minds Jesus should have done. And then in the third and final section, verses 38 through 44, Jesus glorifies himself by raising Lazarus from the dead. Well, Peter Istow read our passage just a few minutes ago, so we can go ahead and jump in with both feet into verse, verses 28 through 32. Look at our first section where we see the overwhelming grief of the people who don't fully comprehend who Jesus is. Last week in verse 27, uh, after Jesus makes his startling announcement that he is the resurrection and the life, Martha, while she is confessing Christ, she's hesitant. She's uncertain about what it all means at the very least. She is uncertain. Verse 27, she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so in verse 28 today, we pick up right where we left off. You will remember as well that last week Jesus has not yet arrived in Bethany uh, where Lazarus is laid to rest in his tomb. It's, it's, it's sort of like Jesus is still in New Baltimore. He isn't quite in the Warrington town limits yet, just down the street at the cemetery by Lazarus's tomb. And so Martha has gone there uh, to New Baltimore to beat him, and now she hurries back just the short distance back to Bethany, back to Warrington in verse 28. She, she takes her sister aside. She's out of earshot of the Jews, some of whom are probably some of those who wanted to kill Jesus in chapter 10 because Jesus had said, I and the Father are one. And so Martha takes her sister aside in verse 28. She whispers to Mary, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. Mary, of course, loses no time in rushing off to meet her Lord. Jesus has a deep relationship with the sisters and their family. They've spent a lot of time together during Jesus' ministry. They know each other well, and Mary is anxious to see Jesus. She's anxious for the comfort that he can provide, and she's anxious even to have an answer, some sort of explanation as to why he couldn't have been there sooner. Meanwhile, in verse 31, the Jews follow Mary. They think she's rushing off to mourn at Lazarus' tomb in a, in a sudden fit of extreme anguish. You know how that comes over us in times like those. But they discover instead that she's going to weep at the feet of Jesus. Verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is the same thing her sister Martha had said to Jesus back in verse 21 when she went to meet him. But like her sister, Mary isn't rebuking Jesus. She's lamenting what could have been if Jesus had come to Bethany a little sooner before Lazarus died. Just like we might regret not going to the doctor sooner. She's in anguish over the what if. Lord, if you'd only been here then we wouldn't be going through all this pain. Lazarus would still be here. Oh my, how I loved him. How I loved him. How I miss him. How we all loved him. But Jesus, now he's gone. He's gone. I think most of us can relate to what, what it's like to lose a loved one, can't we? 
I remember when my mom died a couple years ago, all of a sudden there's this big hole in my life. Before my mom died, I could never imagine life without her. It was like she'd be around forever. There'd always be the chance to pick up the phone and talk. Always that chance to tell her I loved her. Always that chance to go have lunch with her and my dad. But all of a sudden, just like that, my family and I faced an ugly new reality. A life without my mom. I, don't, I, I honestly don't know how somebody who doesn't know the Lord can deal with death except to believe in visions of a heaven for good people, whatever that means, or some sort of black nothingness where we no longer exist at all. That's the way the world deals with death. Either we all go to heaven except for the people we don't like or we just cease to exist. But you know, both of those perspectives ignore the reality of the reason for death. God told Adam that because of Adam's sin, that he and all of mankind are corrupt. And as he says in Genesis 3, everyone will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so according to God, death is the consequence of sin for every human being. And it's not even natural. Before Adam's fall, there was no such thing as death. Death is the wage of sin, and we die because sin has entered into the world, and it is a death that we deserve. Sin has infected all of creation. It is the payment for our sin. So death is our enemy, not just generally speaking. But you know what? Every single one of us, if the Lord tarries, every single one of us in this room will have to face the ultimate test of our faith someday. Because death demands an answer to that question. Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus? And so certainly we can relate to Mary's grief. This is the overwhelming grief that we see in these verses, in this section. Her grief and the despair of everybody around her as they mourn Lazarus is also the setting for our next section. And this is where we're going to see what death means for a Christian. And also how unbelief makes us blind to the glory of God. And so in our second section, we see that Jesus weeps and we also meet cynics who all they can see is what Jesus should have done in their own eyes in verses 33 through 37, verses, beginning in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And so in all of this weeping that we see in Mary and Martha and all the Jews who've tagged along with Mary in verse 33, this is a specific kind of weeping. The Greek word is kleo, which is a loud wailing. This is a, a, a human reaction to death. This is what we see, for instance, when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter 
uh, his, uh, the Jairus' 12-year-old daughter in Mark chapter 5. It illustrates what should happen to our grief when we believe Jesus. In that passage, Jesus is at the synagogue when he hears the news that she's died. In Mark 5, 36, he overheard what they said. And Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. So just as as in our story of Lazarus, of course, Jesus is reminding the Jewish ruler to believe in him, to believe Jesus, because he's God incarnate. He has authority over death. And because of that, believing Jesus will abolish their fear of death and it should lessen our despair over death. This is what Jesus is about when he arrives at the house where Jairus is. There he finds in Mark 5.38 a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. The people are just racked with grief. They're all over the place crying. It's a chaotic scene. And that's because they don't understand who's just showed up. They don't understand that Jesus does have the authority that he needs over death because he is God. He can do something about this. In Mark chapter 5, verse 39, when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. In other words, just like Lazarus' death is a temporary death, that we, we saw that last week, Lazarus has only died temporarily. The death of Jairus' daughter is also a temporary death in Mark chapter 5. So Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. But it's despairing and weeping and wailing that Jesus is surrounded by again in our passage as he approaches Lazarus' tomb. Even though they've watched him raise Jairus' daughter, even though he's told the people over and over again who he is, their grief has overcome them because the Jesus that they know is too small for the task of bringing Lazarus back from the dead. They can't imagine that Jesus has that kind of power. But of course, Jesus, hallelujah, is about to prove it to them that he does have that power. I had a a, a dream one time about a house I once lived in. I dreamed that one day I discovered this room that I never knew was there. I'm walking down the hall and all of a sudden there's a door I'd never seen before. And so I opened it and there's this incredible, beautiful room set up in just the way that I would want a room to be. There were windows all around and there was scenery outside the window that didn't really exist next to this house. But it was absolutely gorgeous. It was beautiful. This is exactly what's about to happen to some of the people who are watching Jesus as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus. They're going to discover something grand and beautiful about Jesus that they couldn't imagine before, only in this case, it's real. But for the moment, they're stricken with a deep despair. They despair of life without Lazarus because they don't yet believe Jesus. And this explains Jesus' reaction in verse 33 of our passage. When Jesus saw all of their weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Well, here's where our translation in English can 
cause us to misread what Jesus is thinking. We, in English, to be greatly troubled and to be deeply moved can mean that Jesus is just, he's just worried to death. He's overcome with all kinds of uncontrolled emotion. But according to the great preacher and scholar Dr. R.C. Sproul and other scholars, the best way to translate what the original Greek is getting at is to say this, Jesus was irate. That's a little surprising, isn't it? Well, this isn't the kind of unbridled anger that you and I might experience when we've been misunderstood. This is the holy anger that only the Son of God could have. We've already seen something of what may be a part of his motivation for being irate. His dearest friends still are not getting the picture about who he is. And even though he's been telling them, even though he's told them that what he's about to do seems impossible, but that he's going to do it, their weeping is simply evidence that they lack the hope that knowing Jesus in a real way would bring. He just told Martha that he's the resurrection and the life. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He has told his disciples and Martha that he will awaken Lazarus. Verse 23, he's told Martha, your brother will rise again. And yet everybody's just weeping and wallowing in their despair. As if hoping in Christ is an uncertain thing. That's part of why Jesus is irate. But there's more to it than that. The root of the holy anger of our Lord is also compassion. Dr. Sproul asserts that Jesus' anger stems from this. And this is a direct quote from Dr. Sproul. He was in the presence of the ravaging destruction of the greatest enemy of mankind, death. This was his enemy. This was the foe that in only a few days he was going to confront head on in the throes of the agony he would experience on the cross, dying to conquer death. He encountered the sorrow that death had provoked. Jesus entered into the affliction of his people so deeply that he was moved within himself at the travesty of death. That's beautifully put. So on the one hand, Jesus is irate because Lazarus' friends and family are lost in despair even though the resurrection and the life is standing right in front of them. His presence ought to calm their fears and their despair over death. That's something that every one of us should remember. We have the hope of Christ as we'll see in a moment, the hope of Christ that causes us to see death in a very different light from somebody who does not believe in Jesus. And so while it is appropriate to grieve death as Jesus does, we need not wallow in despair because we know who Jesus is. But on the other hand, Jesus also has a deep sense of compassion for their ignorant suffering. And he's angry at death. He hates the sin that has caused this awful penalty. And he hates it with a holy hatred. This is the compassion and mercy for us that our Lord will carry up that hill to Calvary with him. And that's why Jesus goes on to Lazarus' tomb in verse 34. 
And in verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This is the shortest verse in the whole Bible. And these two words are beautiful because of the meaning we can attach to them. The first thing we need to understand is that Jesus, he's not wailing and crying uncontrollably like Mary and Martha and the others. This is a different kind of weeping. This is the Greek word dakrio, not kleo. This is an entirely different word. And this word, instead of loud wailing, means that he is shedding tears. This is the kind of weeping that's in keeping with hope and compassion. These are tears of sympathy, not agony. By the way, the only time that Jesus wept loudly, or kleo, the other word, was on the day that we commemorate today, on Palm Sunday. This is when Jesus approaches Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. He looks upon the city as he approaches it. This city of God's chosen people that ironically is marked by unrepentant sin. That is, the people of God absolutely reject their own Messiah. And this is a rejection that will culminate on the cross. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, we read about Jesus weeping like this and when he drew near and saw the city he wept over it he wept and he wailed he cried he cried out everybody knew that he was crying Jesus goes on in verse 44 to say that Jerusalem will be destroyed because you did not know the time of your visitation in other words Jerusalem You did not believe me. You didn't believe that I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, or that the Father and I are one. You didn't believe that. And so... Our Lord experiences a great deal of deep mourning for God's chosen people who prove themselves to be unrepentant sinners. And he wails loudly because he fully understands the consequences of their rejection of his lordship. And that will be death followed by the eternal wrath of God. In other words, they will pay for their own sin. That should give us pause, shouldn't it? What do you think that the consequences really are of rejecting Christ? Do you you find yourself making light of it? Do you think that it's okay to believe only the parts that suit you and throw away all the stuff that that makes you uncomfortable? We've heard the very same message from our Bibles that the Jews heard about Jesus. And here's Jesus' reaction to the consequences of rejecting him. He doesn't seem to take it very lightly, does he? He wails with grief for what is waiting for them. That should tell us that this is very, very serious business. But back in Bethany, Jesus is shedding tears quietly and compassionately. Jesus wept. He's weeping for our wretched condition. 
He's weeping for the people's ignorance about who he is, for our pitiful state of sin that causes the end of life. And in just a little while, he's going to willingly die as the payment for your sin and for mine. This is what Lazarus' death is showing us, that Christ will die too, and also that he'll rise again, and having defeated both sin and death, and guarantee a resurrection for us, guarantee eternal life for us, if we believe in him. That raises an interesting question. Mary and Martha, well, they didn't didn't know about the cross yet. We look back on it. But have you ever wondered why Christians die? If the wages of sin is death and Christ paid that price for us and then we say that Christ defeated death in his resurrection, why in the world do we believers die? It's a really important question for us to answer because it's going to set us up to understand the rest of this story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This is a question that the Heidelberg Catechism addresses. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in, in the middle of the Reformation in 1576. It's one of the catechisms that our New City Catechism, that our catechizer over here uses every Sunday with the children. It's one of the catechisms that that New City Catechism is based upon. And so the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 42, asks this. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Answer, our death does not pay the debt of our sins. Rather, it puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. In other words, unbelievers pay their own debt of sin. But Christ paid the price for the believer, yet in the meantime, the Bible confirms something that we already know from experience, and that is that God has not removed sin and its effects on creation. He hasn't done that yet. Romans 8, 22 and 23, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, we won't enjoy the fullness of the benefits of the cross and the empty tomb until Christ comes again to fulfill what Revelation 21 describes. That is, when God will create a new heaven and earth and there will be no sorrow There will be no sin, there will be no pain, and there will be no death. But in the meantime, we live in the world that Adam has left us. And in a day and time when sin and destruction and death still reign. But to quote Dr. Sproul just one more time, we should be glad that God did not wrap up his plan 2,000 years ago. If he had done so, you and I would have never existed or seen his glorious grace. And so why do Christians die? It is for the glory of God. Just as Lazarus died for the glory of God. The perfection of heaven isn't yet consummated, but even death takes on a whole new and grand meaning and significance for the believer. It is a holy and precious moment to God. It is that moment when God receives us into heaven. We are received there to rest until the final resurrection. In other words, 
just as the death of Lazarus was temporary, just as the death of Christ was only temporary, our physical death is only temporary. We will be raised in glorified bodies and we will live forever in the kingdom of God. That is hope, isn't it? And it is that hope that Lazarus' family just doesn't understand yet. And it is the hope that Jesus is about to show them and prove to them. It is the hope that he's about to show and prove to Lazarus too. And so as the people watch Jesus weep, some of them seem to understand his sorrow. Verse 36 of our passage. So when the Jews said, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them understand his weeping, understand where it's coming from. But verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That's what Jesus should have done. He should have been here sooner. Doesn't this remind you of the mocking of the soldiers when Christ was crucified and how one of the criminals who was nailed up to die uh, with Jesus just lit into him? Luke 23, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He's making demands of Jesus. That's what the unbelieving Jews are doing to Jesus in our passage. So unlike Mary and Martha, their criticism is a rebuke. They're saying that if he really loved Lazarus, he'd have been there sooner. He'd have made sure to be there to help his sick friend. And so far from denying the ability of Jesus to make a blind man see or a sick man well, the Jews are questioning Jesus' motives. They're questioning his character. They're questioning whether he really loves Lazarus. Those are the kinds of questions that raise up from unbelief. They simply don't believe in who Jesus is and they will not be able to see his glory in what Jesus is about to do either because unbelief makes us completely blind to the glory of God. It also causes Jesus to weep. He is moved by compassion and mercy and he raises Lazarus from the dead so that the people may believe. And this brings us to our third and final section in verses 38 through 44 where Jesus glorifies himself by raising Lazarus from the dead. In verse 38, Jesus is still deeply moved. He finally goes to the tomb. Lazarus is buried in a small cave that's been dug into the hillside. It's a lot like the one that Jesus himself will be buried in. Jesus, in verse 39, orders the stone rolled away from the opening of the tomb. And this is where Martha famously protests what Jesus is doing. She points out to Jesus that after four days, the body of Lazarus stinks. His body is well on its way to full-scale composition. As a matter of fact, modern science tells us that only 10 minutes after Lazarus died, his brain cells were completely dead and beyond repair. And so we can only imagine 
what the whole body of Lazarus was like after four days with no modern methods for handling a dead person. This horrific ugliness is what happens to human flesh when we die. And brothers and sisters, it is part of the fall as well. And so that's why Martha objects to rolling away the stone that blocks the tomb entrance. This is not an odor, and it is not a sight that anybody wants to experience. But Martha is also expressing her doubt that Jesus can do what he's about to do. In pointing out the body's condition, she's also implying that raising Lazarus from the dead will be completely impossible. And you know what? It's still impossible today to raise a four-day-old corpse from the dead. Science can't do it today either. Not even with all of our sophistication. We've all heard stories about modern medicine's ability to revive people who are clinically dead. But those events most always most often happen in a hospital setting with the equipment uh, that keeps the blood flowing, the lungs pumping oxygen into the bloodstream. Science simply cannot do what Jesus is about to do. And so Jesus reminds Martha in verse 40. He said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We all know what it's like when somebody doesn't take us at our word. This is exactly what Martha's doing. She's not at taking Jesus at his word. The ultimate test of our relationship with a person is whether we believe them. If we can't believe them, if we can't take a person at their word, it's hard even to be their friend. This kind of trust is, a, is an essential ingredient to a relationship. And so Jesus is not only reminding Martha to believe him, but that when she does, she will see the glory of God. Jesus is not saying seeing is believing. He's not saying, hey, y'all, watch this. This is going to be really cool, and then you're going to believe. Jesus is saying the opposite. He's saying believing is seeing. Notice that believing comes first in his statement. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Seeing God's glory depends on whether we believe. In fact, the Greek word for see means to perceive more than just with the eyes, but we also perceive with the mind. Now, this is where I have to tease Diane Strang. She often teases me because I often ask people, can you see what I'm saying? What she hears is that I'm asking people to visualize the words. But I've got to point out to Diane that this is proof here that I'm speaking biblically. Jesus intends, Jesus intends that Martha perceive what is true about himself. Not simply whether he can do a miracle like raising somebody from the dead. Jesus wants to see that he and the Father are one. That's what he wants Martha to see, that he and the Father are one. He wants her to see that he is the resurrection and the life. It is only when she believes that Christ is I am that she'll be able truly to see God's glory, most especially when for his glory he is nailed to a cross and then abandons a tomb. Jesus wants Martha and Mary to see the glory of salvation 
And to see the glory of salvation means that we must believe Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? And so they take away the stone in verse 41. Probably they're holding their noses as they do it. to guard themselves against the stench. And Jesus prays. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is praying so that the people will know that he and the Father have been having an ongoing conversation so that they will know where his authority is coming from and believe. The Father always hears Christ and so there is no doubt about what he's getting ready to do. And so finally, finally we come to that moment we've been waiting for. Verses 43 and 44. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see that, to see a man that you knew was dead come to life and walk out of the tomb? Could you imagine what it had been like for Lazarus? Nobody could dispute what had just happened. Nobody. Besides the cross, this is Jesus' greatest miracle. A very dead man is now very much alive. The only thing left to consider is who Jesus is. And so as John moves on into the verses that follow our passage, he records something very interesting about the way the people react. In verses 45 and 46, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Jesus has revealed his glory, but for some, seeing was not believing. They saw no glory whatsoever in what Jesus was doing. They saw a blasphemer. They saw a mere man who claimed to be God. And so they went to their authorities, the Pharisees, and they reported it. And then as John goes on to write about a deepening plot to kill Jesus, we know that it culminates in nails through his flesh as he's hung on a cross. But for other people, the miracle proved who Jesus was to them. They understood that the miracle was a sign of something much greater, the sign of a greater truth about Jesus. But we've got to be careful not to leave this at seeing is believing because the Jews rejected Christ even though they saw. They didn't believe Jesus. And even after Jesus rises from the dead himself, one of his disciples, Thomas, cannot believe his eyes. And so the Lord invites him in John 20, put your fingers here, see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He he believes when he touches the wounds of Christ. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so the fact of the matter is, we don't have to see the miracles of Jesus to believe. That's because we hold in our hands the testimony of those who did see. We hold in our hands the red letters in our Bibles that tell us what Jesus said about himself. And we also have all of the black letters in 66 books that testify about who he is. And what all that testimony put together does by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, by a supernatural act of God upon our hearts and our souls, is cause us to believe so that we can see far more than miracles about physical healing. By the help of the Holy Spirit, we believe and then see the glory of God in a far greater miracle. We see God's glory in the fact that He performs the most stunning miracle of all time, and that is He saves us from our sins. This is a spiritual resurrection to new life, a salvation that is only possible. It is only possible because of who Jesus Christ is. Our belief cannot be separated from him. We cannot separate our belief from the way that Jesus describes himself. And he verifies who he is by his own actions. And we find that verification in our Bibles. And so in raising Lazarus, Jesus is reassuring us even now that what happened to him on the cross, it had to happen. It was for the glory of God And it was for his glory that Jesus was crucified and died and was buried. It was for the glory of God that he rose again on the third day and perfectly fulfilled every verse in our Bibles, verses that were written over thousands of years by more than 40 different authors, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it is for God's glory that we have the hope of physical resurrection ourselves. A resurrection that is sealed and verified by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we also have the certainty that as soon as we die, by faith in Christ, we will be in the presence of God. And even more than that, we have the certainty that our own physical death will be but temporary. Hallelujah. Christ is our guarantee of that. He is our guarantee that just as he awakened Lazarus, as it says in Daniel 12, 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, there's a difference, an eternal difference in God's eyes between belief and unbelief. Everyone's going to be resurrected, but only those who believe Jesus will be raised to eternal life. Those who do not will suffer the eternal and righteous wrath of God. And brothers and sisters, that's eternal death. Eternal death is a horror, a conscious horror that will never 
ever end. And so as we consider what we can take home of eternal value from all of this today, from this astonishing story, we've got to remember that we must believe Jesus. It is not enough just to believe some stuff about Him. We've got to believe Him. Believing Him means that we receive Him as He presents Himself to us. And it is when we believe Him that we see the glory of God. And this leads to one final and very important thought about what it means to believe in Jesus. Believing Christ also means that we've got to believe something about ourselves. We've already mentioned the criminal who railed against Christ as they hung on their crosses dying. But we must not forget the other criminal who hung on the other side of our Lord. In Luke 23, verses 40 and 41, we read about it. But the other rebuked the first criminal, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Do you see what the second criminal is confessing? Can you see how this is the confession that Jesus was looking for from Martha? Martha gave Jesus the textbook answer about what she believed. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God who is coming into the world. True statements. But the criminal speaks from his heart. He speaks in a reverential fear of God as he confesses that God righteously condemns his sin and therefore he is condemned. And that means that his only hope is a Savior. And he believes that Jesus is that Savior. And so in verse 42, Luke 23, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, the criminal believes Jesus. And because he does, the criminal also believes a crucial fact about himself, that he is an unworthy sinner, that he deserves the shame and everlasting contempt of Daniel chapter 12. And therefore, as the criminal believes Christ, He sees the glory of God in his own salvation. God is most glorified, brothers and sisters, when we believe, when our rebellious souls are transformed and we put our trust in God. When we believe Christ, when we believe him, we also see the glory of God in the words that Jesus spoke to Lazarus and we see how they apply to us as well. John chapter 11, verse 44, Jesus said, Unbind him and let him go. Only God can save us. Only God can unbind us from the grip of sin and the despair of death. Only he has freed us from death. He has defeated our arch enemy. And we're no longer bound by sin. We no longer dread death because we are no longer debtors to God. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. 
And so do you believe Jesus? If so, then you are able to see the glory of God. You're able to see the glory of the cross. You're able to see the glory of his grace. You're able to see the glory of eternity with your Savior because concerning you, he has said to death and sin, unbind him, let him go. Unbind her, let her go. We are free from sin and death. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because of the faith that you've given us in your Son that you have freed us from sin and death, O God. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this week as we go about this week and consider the things that our Lord went through on his way to the cross the things that he went through on the cross, the fact that that he experienced your wrath in our place, that he was the substitute for us. We pray, Lord, that you would minister to us and speak to us and cause us to love you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.